So I'm going to ask Shamian to come up, and she's going to read for us this morning. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 5. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face, on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they'd moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They've brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and pay honor to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaoh did? When he treated them harshly, did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pin them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart 
and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us and that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and pinned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They didn't turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their corn in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside this large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, together with a chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. There are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning and welcome. Good to see you all. I'm going to open in a word of prayer for us, and then we'll get underway. Let's close our eyes. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we can spend together this morning, for being able to sing, uh, sing together, to glorify your name together, to remind one another that we are here to serve an incredible Lord and God and Savior of our lives. Um, and Lord, we thank you that we have this privilege to, to come together and hear from your word. And Lord, I pray that uh, this may challenge us, shake us, uh, stir us, open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts more and more to who you are and your incredible love that you have for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. So we've read the passage. Um, it's quite a long one, so we're going to dip in and out of it as we go. But just in starting, just to give some thought, uh, just maybe getting our minds in, in a direction of thinking, who of you uh, have had to be on your knees at some point in the last while? When was the last time you were on your knees? Maybe it was to scrub a mark off the floor, um, maybe it was a little bit further back than that. Maybe the men remember a specific moment in their life where they went onto their knees, or at least one of their knees. Anybody? 
You remember a moment when you were on your knees. I just want you to think through that for a bit. It's a very vulnerable position to be in. Yeah? If you've been on your knees recently. Yeah? <laughs> Why is that, Hilton? Yeah, falling. There we go. So that's a vulnerable position to be in. Yeah? To be on your knees. And you feel humble. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's the thing about being on one's knees. It brings you down to size. It brings you below people's line of sight. And it makes you feel definitely vulnerable. Um, and, and, yeah, brings things into perspective often. So keep that thought running in the back of your mind. Um, but as we come to this passage this morning, just a few things that we need to pick up on. And uh, just keep in mind, um, there's a structure there you can look at that in your in your own time, just more so shaped around how the ark moves um, and from where it's moving and where it's going to. So that's kind of how you can see one of the types of structures in this passage, and you can think through it, and you can go and look at it and see why there's why the ark is where it is and what's happening where it's happening. Um, and that map there is the same one that Ludwig put in last week, and I've just put, I've put it in again this week, um, just to get you familiar with where, it's, where the ark is traveling. Um, and that solid line with the arrow on it that kind of moves along, that is the, the movement of the ark from Shiloh to Ebenezer, uh, and then all the way down to the bottom there in the left-hand corner, uh, Ashdod to Gath to Ekron to Beth Shemesh. And then later it gets to Kiriath Jerium. Um, and this is just how the ark has moved. So that's helpful just to understand that this ark has traveled. It's a moving ark, it's uh, getting around. And we see that this takes place, in particular in this passage, within seven months that this ark does this trip. Uh, it moves all this way in seven months. Another thing that we just need to pick up on that's helpful is if you turn back just for a brief moment to chapter 4, verse 11, um, or verse 10, 10 and 11, it says, So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And what's interesting is the story kind of splits at this point, um, the one story progresses into the death of Eli, which we heard last week that Ludwig brought. But there's a second story actually running parallel to this, um, and that is the story of the ark actually beginning to move into Philistine territory. Um, so those are actually together. And what makes it so significant is last week we considered it for a moment, the, the idea of this glory that has departed, um, the glory that has shifted that moves out the glory of the Lord. And what we notice is that the question gets asked, or at least that kind of question is there, is in one sense, where is the glory gone? Uh, for the glory has departed from Israel. And what you see in verse 5 is the answer to that as well, is that the glory has moved into the Philistine territory. And we see what happens when that glory moves into their territory. Does that make sense? Everybody with us? Good, good, good. All right, so the glory has departed, um, and Israel has suffered an incredibly humiliating defeat. 
And the reason being because they brought the ark into battle thinking that they can wield God's power and God's glory. And for seven months, this ark is now in the Philistine territory. And what we see here is that God's hand is incredibly heavy against them. Incredibly heavy against the Philistines. And this is something that we need to keep in mind. It's not a walk in the park. The Philistines capture this ark thinking that it is their prize, that they deserve it. They've won it in battle. And they claim the plunder, only to find that they are going to be absolutely abused and hurt and affected and afflicted by the ark that's going to be in their territory. It's bizarre, don't you think? It is a weird situation. You've just had this immense victorious moment as an army. You've, you've slaughtered 30,000 of your enemies. And with victory, you march off with their, their God's symbol. And you think you've, you've done it. And suddenly, you start getting affected by it. By the very thing that you carried off thinking you had the victory over becomes the very thing that has the victory over you. No man involved. No person. It's purely God's glory. God's heavy hand on the Philistines. There's no Israelite in this section of the story. We must pick that up. There's no mention of Israel as a character other than a slight reference to Israel when they came out of Egypt. But other than that, in this section of 5, verse 1 to 6, verse 18, Israel is not a character. But their God is. And the Philistines. And so this whole story plays out between the two of them and what's taking place. What I do want to do is, as we get started, draw our attention to a story that maybe you're quite familiar with. Uh, maybe you've read it a couple times and thought it's quite an incredible and fascinating story. Uh, but the story within the story is that of what's taking place in Ashdod. Who of you have heard of the story that unfolds regarding Dagon? Yes, heard of Dagon? Okay, so let's read that quickly again. It says, After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any other who, enters, who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation to them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. And this is fascinating. And there is so much stuff wrapped up in just this little part of the story of what's happening here in Ashdod. And we need to just glance at it for a little bit of time and just give it some thought. The first thing is, just to keep in mind, Ashdod is the, one of the main cities of, 
of the Philistine territory. And in Ashdod, they have their temple dedicated to Dagon. This is their city with the temple for their deity, for their God that they believe in. So it's an important city. It's arrived, and this is the city where the people recognize that this is where one of their temples are for their God, Dagon. And this is fascinating because here they have this temple established. There's Dagon sitting in his temple, and the Philistines bring in the ark of God. What do they do with the ark is the next question that we need to contemplate. It's not that they put the ark in a submissive or a position lower than Dagon. Instead, they put it beside Dagon. So in one sense, what it suggests to us is that the Philistines don't actually just want to capture the ark, but they want to put the ark alongside their current God and use him as well. So it's not as though the Philistines are rejecting this Israel's God, but in fact they are wanting to capture him and use him um, as a God of their own. And so they put him beside Dagon. It's fascinating that we then see in verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground. And where? Before the ark. So overnight, something significant took place. Here, the Philistines brought the ark, put it beside their God, and the next morning, their God was lying in front of the ark. Their God, that they believed in, had fallen before the feet of Israel's God. No Israelite in sight, no scheming, no planning, no human interaction here, just pure, perplexing, obscure circumstances. Their God has collapsed and is lying face down in front of the ark. And that face down is often a position of worship. So if you read through the Old Testament and you see that position, it is when people will fall face down before the Lord, face down in an act of worship, face down in a position of surrender before a God that they believe to be incredibly powerful, incredibly mighty. And here, the Philistines, God has fallen face down before the ark. Now, if that's not insulting enough to the Philistines, um, they... It's made a little bit worse in the story. And this kind of gets me chuckling every time I read it. So if you carry on there, in verse, the rest of verse 3, it says, um, So Dagon had fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So what did they do next? What happened? What makes this so embarrassing? They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Surely their God can do it himself. Surely if they left him another day on the floor in front of the ark, the next day Dagon would be standing next to the ark again. No, it's not how it works. They had to prop Dagon back up alongside the ark. And this is a peculiar story. 
This is bizarre. When you start thinking about who Dagon, what Dagon represents, Dagon represents the Philistines and their God. And the Philistines are having to pick their God up and put him back into place. And this is peculiar. And we keep going, and you find in verse 4, But the following morning when they arose, there was Dagon fallen on his face and on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And you think it stops there, but the embarrassment is taken one step further once more. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. This is significant because he has been crippled. The second fall has crippled their God. In one sense, he has actually been destroyed. The idol that was created to represent their God has been destroyed. The head, the ability to show authority and function and rule and reign has been decapitated. And the hands to be able to act and do has been removed. This God has been left useless. And then to add insult a little bit more to to this passage, notice what it says in verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. I mean, this is amazing how it's used, the, the language and the ideas of hands and heads and all these things. And here you have this this idol that keeps falling in front of the ark. And what is, what is it that we learn? Is that the Lord's hand is heavy. The Lord's hand is heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. While their God lies without hands and without a head, the Lord's hand, notice the Lord's hand, he doesn't need both hands, he just uses one hand. His hand is heavy on Ashdod and its vicinity. It's amazing. It's bizarre, but amazing. And there's one more thing that we need to pick up in this. How would you have responded had you considered all these events? Had you been the Philistines? Had you been these people in Ashdod? How would you have responded in this moment? Thinking, there's your God, and He has fallen, His head is broken, His hands are broken. And here's this ark that we dragged in, Israelites, symbol of Israelites' God. Now, what would you respond? Well, verse 7 shows us what they respond. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. It's bizarre. I can understand the first part. This God that we've brought into our camp, into our city, he's heavy on us. But the fact that they go on to say that he's heavy on Dagon, our God, is a failure to see what God has done to their God. Because God has, in fact, dismembered him. God has shown that he is truly powerful, truly great, Truly awesome. And these people look at it and they say, let's get rid of him because he's heavy on us and our God. When in actual fact, God has been so heavy that he has beheaded and disarmed, literally, 
their God. That is their response in this moment. This is how they want to respond to it. Rather than fall to their knees in awe and awareness that this is a mightier God than their own, they decide to get rid of it. They decide to get rid of the ark as quickly as they can. Just on a side note, something just to pick up, as I said in the beginning, that this is playing out parallel to another story. You have the death of Eli and his family that's unfolding. And the question is that where is that glory? And the glory that we see was originally around, and I misspelt it, but maybe it works, Eli's waist. So the glory we see in verses four, in chapter four, verse twelve onwards, we see is around Eli's waist. But that same weight we see now has made, has left there, but it is now heavy upon the nation in which the ark is moving into. That same weight is upon them now. There's a judgment. There is a weight that is upon them. And they are afflicted by it. And so in desperation, you see how the Philistines respond. From verse 8 to 9, they want to get it to Gath. From, 10, uh, from 5 verse 10 to 6, 11, it has to move to Ekron. And it's here that they begin to discuss how to return it. That they can't simply just return this, but that they have to figure out, is this truly of God or not? Now, if you give that some thought, surely you should have known by now that this was an affliction by God. But yet they are not sure. They are so stuck in their ways, believing that their God is a powerful God. And that they can't sway from that. So they have to figure out whether they are being afflicted by another God or not. And so they consult with one another. The city leaders come together and they discuss it. And they devise a plan. And it's a remarkable plan. Did you pick up on the story that unfolds and how they determine whether this was God's affliction or whether it was pure chance? They take two cows. Two cows that have had calves. And they lock the calves up. They lock them away. Now, a cow that is separated from its calf can get agitated and want to go back and find its calf. And here they hitch two up to, they hitch it up to this trailer, to this wagon, and they load the ark on with these offerings, these guilt offerings. And by all reason, what should take place is these cows should start wanting to go in different directions to find their calves. This makes logical sense. But instead what we find is that they go straight. They don't go to the left or to the right. They head a straight course to Beth Shemesh. That defies all logic, all odds. That these two cows that have never been hitched before, that have never, most likely to this point, been separated from their calves for that much, are hitched 
to a wagon and off they go, as if they've done it before. And it's the response that the Philistines have, that they recognize that this must then have been, this must have been Israel's God. And so, in noticing that, they still fail to see the significance of the God that was in their presence. A nation still consumed by their own God, by their own deity, thinking that their God is greater. So what do we get from looking at this passage? As we think it through, it's this bizarre story wrapped up here in 1 Samuel. Without Israel being mentioned, all about Philistines and this God of Israel in their presence. And all the time that this God of Israel is in their presence, there is absolute havoc. There's an outbreak of rats and tumors and all sorts of things taking place. People are dying, not just sick, but actually dying. So what do we see? When we look at it, we get a glimpse. We get a glimpse at a God who cannot be contained or controlled who breaks out on his people and the world. See, the previous passage that we looked at last week, Israel tried to domesticate God, tried to use God. Israel, being God's own chosen people, surely they could, to some degree, have God on their side. But that's not how it works. Because you can't domesticate God. You can't control God. And then you have this section in the Philistine territory. They try and put Israel's God in a temple and he breaks himself out of the temple. By his power he moves because nobody wants him in their company, in their city. And so God can't be contained. He can't be controlled. And when the people are against him, he breaks out against them. Israel saw it when they lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And the nation here of the Philistines are witnessing it as they're encountering rats and tumors and death. Because this God is not a prize of victory in a battle. He is not a God that you wield like you wield your other idols. You don't place him in a temple and think you own him. He is a God that is beyond four walls. He is a God beyond your own means. He is a God beyond what you desire and what you are striving for. He is a God who has an intention and a plan of his own. Is that amazing? When we see God moving in a bizarre way in this section of Scripture. I mean, there's no human hand involved in, in one sense in how he's moving. It's just that people are passing this ark along, but God in himself is not in the ark. It is God's glory that is moving amongst this Philistine territory. And it's there, in one sense, for Israel to see. For Israel to be reminded 
that they failed, they tried to control God, and it didn't work. And so when they look at the Philistines and see what the Philistines did, that they may too learn that you can't put God in a box, you can't put Him in a temple, you can't control Him, but that He is the Almighty God that moves and does what He wants to do. And so, as I was wrestling with this passage, something got me thinking about how do we consider the God that we serve today? When we say we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we mean by that? Does it mean that when we go out into our weeks, we carry Him with us, and we say whatever this week may hold, He's on my side? Or do we come to church on a Sunday and expect to find him within the four walls of where we're meeting? Because that's where we think Jesus is. That's where we think this God is. In the four walls of a temple or a church or a building. Or do we leave him in the bookends of this book that we have? In the two covers. And we say, this is, this is the God I serve. He's in here. And however I use this, I'll make him be on my side. Or do we find ourselves on our knees? That position of vulnerability, of awareness, that we are not in a position to control or master this God that we say we serve. Are we on our knees in the realization of his greatness, of his mighty? incredible glory. Are we on our knees for that? For that reason? Is he bringing you to your knees for that reason? Either we are humiliated onto our knees or we are brought down onto our knees or we can choose before either of those happen that we rather be on our knees when we look to him and recognize that he is an incredibly powerful and mighty God because we don't want to be on the wrong side of his wrath and his anger when it comes to his judgment and we're going to see as we go into next week's passage on next Sunday it it carries on it moves on the ark comes back to Israel and there's more hardship there's more devastation to come but the question is Are we on our knees? Has Israel learned that this is a God that you cannot control, but that you need to be on your knees before? Here is the incredible reason why we need to be on our knees. Because our reason shifts slightly. It's not so much out of absolute fear of God, but it's a reverence. It's an awe. It's a respect. It's a love a gratitude and before I read it this is my own little contemplation of when I proposed to Zon I went down on a knee I was petrified because I realized that just holding that ring is like holding your heart in front of 
the person that you care about and the person that you love. And that person can either squish it and hurt it or can embrace it and embrace you and love you. But I was on my knees. I think if I was on both my knees, I would have looked like I was begging. Um, But thankfully, I was on one knee. But, But this is the attitude. We come to God on a knee. We take a knee. We bow down. We come in vulnerability and humility because of who He is, because of His love, and you want to share in that love with Him because of what He has done for you through Jesus Christ. And it's an entering into a relationship with Him that is so incredible. So hear these words in Romans 5 verse 9. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? See, being on our knees before Him, we can recognize this, that we have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And while we're there, we recognize all the more that we are being saved from God's wrath through Jesus Christ. That what awaits is different to the outflowing stories of what happens with Israel and the Philistines. That while we are on our knees, we don't have to fear the devastation of what's to come, but rather the relationship of what's in front of us. A relationship with this incredible, almighty God. That we serve Him. That we love Him in humility. Not trying to control Him and wield Him to do our bidding, but that we are there before Him to serve Him and His bidding. To do what He desires. And to love Him. And to be in His presence. Isn't that amazing? I think that's pretty cool. Makes me want to be on my knees a little bit more. Just the practice of it. So maybe if you still have the ability, or if Hilton, next time you find yourself there, just think a little bit more about it. Take the time while you're there. Go, oh, it's a good place to be. Yeah? To be on our knees before the incredible creator, sustainer, provider, the one that sent his son for us, so we don't have to face the wrath that awaits us in our sinfulness. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for yeah, the reminder of your Son, Jesus Christ, for what you have done for us. I'm just taking a glimpse at the story now and thinking back and how you demonstrate your glory, your power, and your authority. And that in Christ we can come before you. That as we take a knee before you, that you are an incredible God who loves us. And you have demonstrated so through your son Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that this may become a deeper reality for us. That we may wrestle more and more with this. That before we run to you to solve our problems, before we run to you to do something for us that we find ourselves on our knees before you.
in awe of you, filled with joy before you. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your incredible gift of grace that you have shown us and are showing us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.